Thank you, men, for sharing that uh, challenging song with us about being found faithful. I want to call your attention to the fact that this evening we'll be concluding uh, our study in the book of Jude, and as a part of our service here in the Worship Center, the New Life Academy will have a singing group that will take 25 minutes for a concert. So we encourage you to be here not only for the teaching of the Word, but for that opportunity from the New Life Academy as well. Undoubtedly, you've heard the expression, the lull before the storm. That expression describes that brief period of relative calm that precedes the fury of a squall line. You can see it approaching, the menacing clouds boiling and racing toward you, but where you stand, at least for the moment, there is tranquility. And then... Then the quietness is suddenly overtaken by a tempest as the storm strikes. John writes of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem for his final week in the twelfth chapter of his gospel. The conflict and the cross loom before him like a hurricane. But first, there is a lull before the storm. I invite you to look with me in that twelfth chapter of John where I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him 
and that he had done these things. They had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were there with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. We have in this text a contrast between a private reception and a public presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that contrast, we observe two divergent ways to relate to Jesus. In verses 1 through 8, we find a record of a private reception of Jesus in Bethany. It was the lull before the storm, an evening of quiet retreat with his close friends. In verses 9 through 11, we have recounted how a large crowd was attracted by him and by Lazarus. There was a great sense of anticipation on the part of the gathering thousands at the temple in Jerusalem, who were there to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we come in verse 12 and following to the description of the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as he publicly presented himself as the King Messiah of Israel. And then the storm hits. In the text, as I say, there are two divergent ways presented to us as to how we may relate to Jesus Christ. First, there is that way of genuine worship in which we give him what he deserves. And then there is that way of relating to him that is false enthusiasm in which we seek to realize from him our own expectations. The first reflects the peace that comes from a personal relationship with the Savior. The second, the tumult of a popular kind of religion. Think with me first about the private reception in verses 1 through 8. Jesus comes here to a favorite retreat of his, to Bethany, where he is among close friends. A dinner is prepared at the home of Simon the leper, according to the Synoptic Gospels, a man who had apparently been healed by Jesus as well. It was served in its customary manner with the guests reclining on cushions or on couches on their left sides with their heads toward the center table from which they would take food to eat, their legs and feet being stretched out behind them. Here we see a setting of friends, friends who believed on Jesus. Martha is doing her thing. She's helping get the food ready. We see Martha as a busy and wonderful person. But again, we see Mary doing something different. 
than Martha. In the church, there are Marthas and there are Marys. And Mary here again is doing something in personal ministry to Jesus. What she does is out of place, according to the etiquette of that time, according to the culture of those days. But Mary understands something that the rest do not. In what she does for Jesus, she provides to us an example of the nature of true worship. In the first place, true worship requires our costliest treasures. Mary brought out her best gift. It was an alabaster container in which was a pound of pure, not dilated or adulterated, but pure nard. Nard was a fragrance from an aromatic herb grown in the Himalayas in northern India. It was transported the thousands of miles from the Himalayas across what is today India and Afghanistan and uh, Arabia into Palestine. It was carried by caravans. We are told that the cost of this container and its contents amounted to 300 denarii, which was about one years of wages for a common laborer in Palestine. A full year of wage for a common laborer. Mary gladly brought out this costliest treasure that she owned in order that she might minister to Jesus and in doing so worship him. Ladies and gentlemen, worship that is genuine calls for our costliest treasures, our very best. It means giving to Jesus what we hold most dear, what we cherish. It means that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might with all that we are. It means that if we're going to worship him with true worship, that we must allow nothing to come before him. We must be willing to give him our time. We must be willing to give him our family. We must be willing to give him our friends. We must be willing to give him our money. We must be willing to give him our possessions. We must be willing to give him our plans. We must be willing to give him our desires. Whatever it is that we hold precious to ourselves must belong to Jesus if we are genuinely going to worship him. There is a second 
observation that I make here regarding true worship and what Mary did. True worship releases a conspicuous fragrance. John tells us that it filled the whole house. The fragrance of her worship, her perfume that she put on Jesus, rested on all of the guests who were there. And because she anointed his head, his hair, his neck, his feet, that fragrance stayed with Jesus for days. It had to, as he went here and there in this final week of his life. This reminds me of what Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians. And it is that when we worship him, that act of our lives becomes like a sweet perfume, a savor that comes up to God and which also marks others around us. It cannot help but have a difference in their lives because true worship cannot be contained in a bottle. It cannot be contained in an auditorium of a church. True worship releases a conspicuous fragrance so that others bumping into us can tell that we have been with Jesus. A third observation of true worship is that it reveals camouflaged sin. What Judas said sounded very reasonable. In fact, it would fit in very well into the arguments being heard these days in Washington, D.C. It sounds very spiritual, what he said. Why are you wasting this? It could be sold and the money given to the poor. Can you imagine such a socially conscious person as this? We applaud him. He was utilitarian. It was the practical thing to do, not to waste it. But Mary's act of true worship revealed the camouflaged sin in Judas's life. Though he used those words, they did not represent his heart. For there was a cloak in his heart that concealed lesser motives of greed and covetousness. That sin that he was able to hide successfully was provoked by Mary's lavish generosity to Jesus. And true worship reveals camouflaged sin. The worship of God often brings disclosure of sin. In the worshiper, as in the case of Isaiah, who being in the presence of God cried out, Woe is me, I am undone. He saw his sin. And he was the best man in the whole nation. Or consider Peter, who being in the presence of holiness, of deity itself, said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
when we worship God and there is no conviction of sin in our lives, there is no humiliation for the failures that we all have, when there is no prick of guilt, when there is no consciousness that we have failed God, our worship is not genuine. When we are not broken before God, our worship is not authentic. Because real worship reveals camouflaged sin. Articles are being written about revival breaking out on campuses across America. And this last week in two of the local colleges, there was an expression of this as chapel went on from the scheduled time to encompass the whole day and into the night. As students stood up and before their peers with tears acknowledged their sin in their lives. Sin was exposed because somehow God had touched that chapel, had touched that student body. My friend, whenever God touches us, there will always be the result of brokenness in our hearts. And confession of sin before God. And finally, I noticed that true worship receives Christ's approval. Jesus actually commended Mary for this lavish sacrifice. He says, let her alone. It was in order that she may keep it. In anticipation of the day of my burial is what he's saying. She didn't sell it. She was keeping it in anticipation of this act and of what's coming in just a few days. Jesus commends Mary. He says, for the poor you always have with you. Jesus is not there being callous toward the poor. He is not saying we have no responsibility for the poor. He is simply pointing out the fact that soon he would be gone and there was a priority of worshiping him at this point. <clears throat> you see, Mary understood exactly what she was doing. Mary understood something that the others had missed, although Jesus had told them time and again that he was going up to Jerusalem that he would suffer, that he would die. And Mary understood somehow that the time had come and Jesus was about to die. And so she offered to him this worship. What we give the Lord in worship is never, ever wasted when we offer it sincerely. Therefore, never hesitate to express your worship to God in lavish, surprising, extravagant ways. The head as well as the feet, as Mary did, pouring out all of it before the Lord. Ken Geyer, in his book, Intimate Moments, writes in his unique way of this moment, 
He says, for the disciples, the ministry was fast becoming a business to be budgeted rather than a savior to be served. What a stab in the heart this must have been to their honored guest, bickering about the poor, when one sits in their midst famished for a crust of human understanding. They are the most intimate confidants, yet none has a clue to the gnawing hunger inside of him. Peter doesn't, James doesn't, John doesn't. But Mary, she does. She sees the melting tallow of emotions in Christ's eyes. So beautiful the flame, so tender the wick, so mercenary the hand that seeks to extinguish it. For this brief candle, she weeps. And as she does, she anoints him with perfume to prepare for his burial. Mingled with tears, the perfume becomes, by some mysterious chemistry of heaven, not diluted but more concentrated, potent enough to behind the ears of each century for the scent to linger to this day, a fragrant reminder of her extravagant love. On the cross, stripped of his clothing, Jesus would wear only the perfume that Mary had lavished upon his hair. It was that perfume which filled his nostrils and covered the stench of mockers rabbled around the cross. And maybe, maybe when he took, his, took a deep breath, it was that perfume which gave him the strength to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Soon the body of Jesus would be broken. Blood would spill from the whip from the thorns, from the nails, and finally from the spear thrust in his side. A perfume more precious than nard, so pure, so lovely, so truly extravagant. The Savior had come to earth to break an alabaster jar for humanity, and Mary had come that night to break one for him. It was a jar he never regretted breaking, nor did she. True worship. True worship changes us forever. But in contrast to this true worship, there is the account of what happened on the first Palm Sunday. Word was getting out. There was great expectation in the city of Jerusalem. The storm that was in the distant during the lull began to blow with the triumphal entry of Jesus. Tension was growing as the throng anticipated Jesus coming to this feast. The atmosphere of the whole city is electric with conflict, intrigue, and messianic fever. Normally 25,000 people lived in the city of Jerusalem, but during the feast, 100,000 were there because all of them wanted to stay in the city of Jerusalem, the rabbis declared the border of Jerusalem enlarged during the feast days. All the way out to Bethphage, the border would be extended so that everyone could be in the city of Jerusalem. And many of those who came were from Galilee. The Galileans were in particularly, in particular eager to have Jesus lead a revolt against Rome. For Galilee was the place of insurrection. 
It was noted for a man by the name of Judas, who in the year 6 AD began a movement of revolt in Rome. That was about 24 years before this. Judas was from Galilee. This Judas. He is mentioned, by the way, in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. The Roman government had demanded a census of the people. Quirinius was governor in Syria again and was enforcing this census. Judas and his followers said, never. And so he, along with a Pharisee, began a revolt against Rome, which in itself was short-lived, but it began a movement that was called the Zealots. One of the major streams of influence in Israel in that day, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, were the Zealots. The Zealots hated Rome. The Zealots carried daggers in their robes so that they might assassinate Roman officials that they might happen by. Their saying was, no tax but the temple tax. No God but God, no friend but zealots. They mixed their faith with a strong nationalism. And in that crowd, on that Sunday, as Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem, there were zealots whipping up the fervor of the people because here was another Galilean who could lead revolt against Rome. I wish we had time to go into each of the stages as Jesus came over the Mount of Olives, saw the city of Jerusalem and broke out into tears, loud sighs and, and sobbings and cries. Not a quiet whimper, but a, a loud crying out to God. Oh, Jerusalem, he said, if only you had known the day of your visitation. And in those prophetic words, he sees Jerusalem 40 years later through his eyes being destroyed by Rome because of its unbelief and rejection of him. On that day, that Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally acted to force the issue of his claims upon the nation of Israel. He knew that what he was doing was going to be misunderstood by some, that it would enrage his enemies. By the way, his enemies had planned to kill Jesus, but they said after the feast, when the Galileans have gone home and the crowd is down to normal in Jerusalem, Jesus forced them to change their timetable by what he did on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was his plan. By the way that he entered the city, he intentionally stimulated messianic expectations. He knew that among the Jews in that day, there was the, the idea that Messiah was going to come with the clouds to Israel if the people were ready. But if they were not ready, he was going to come riding on a donkey from the east. That was the general expectation of the people of Israel in that day. And Jesus acted upon that very rumor, that very idea, and presented himself in the manner that they were expecting, and yet in a manner that was unexpected. 
Because he came not as a Messiah to lead a revolt against Rome, but as a Messiah who came to bring peace with God. And what happened that day, no one understood fully until after the events of the resurrection. John tells us, then they understood. And we understand through their eyes what happened. He presented himself as a king to his people, but he knew already they would reject him for who he was. And though they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Within days they would turn against him. What we see on Palm Sunday is popular religion. The kind of religion that is so common in America. The kind of religion that wants Jesus for its own agenda. It will shout his name enthusiastically as long as he conforms to religion's goals and desires. This is the religion of those Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but who are looking for Jesus to meet their needs and what they want. That's the Palm Sunday crowd. It's not the crowd that will enter Jesus' kingdom. Those who enter the kingdom are those who worship him in truth and in spirit. Those who recognize their sin and confess it. Those who give him their very best. That's the kind of a worshiper I hope that you are, that I am. That as we stand on the threshold of the time when the king is going to come again, and I believe we're in those days, those days spoken of in the Bible as the last days, that we are standing literally on the threshold of the king coming again. Let us not be caught up in the popular religion of our day, but let us be caught up with him in a personal relationship where we are trusting Him as our Lord and Savior and worshiping and serving Him with all that we have so that when He comes to establish His kingdom, He may say to us, enter into the joys of what I've prepared. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank God there is a Redeemer. He has come not to make us happy. He's come to save us from our sin. He has not come to meet our needs as we think of them. He's come to meet our essential need, that of forgiving our sin and giving us life with God. How do you examine your own heart? Are you caught up in popular religion? Are you looking for Jesus to meet your agenda, to do what you want him to do? Or are you today like Mary, 
in quietness, pouring out your best, giving yourself to him in gratitude for what he's done for you. Father, break our hearts for the kind of worship that we so glibly bring to church. And today, humble us to be like Mary and to offer to you our very best, what costs us the most, thus proving that our faith is genuine, that we truly believe. And as we enter into this week of remembrance, may there be within our hearts true, genuine worship. Amen.